Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. first lesson today is from the New Testament. It's Philippians. I'm going to read 4 through 9, uh, expand the passage a little bit. It's on page 198 of the New Testament in your pew Bible. If you'll please rise as we read the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, be prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Thanks be to God. It is now time for our second reading. I will ask you to stand for the second reading of God's Word. This is Psalm 27. Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war Raise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tents. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path 
because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It's great to be with you here this morning. Uh, It's humbling to be here with you this morning because uh, so many of you know me from way back when, uh, when I was a child, and you're wondering, how this this is marvelous in our eyes. How could the Lord do this? Mike Stewart would be up preaching at First Presbyterian Church. So... um, it's good to see all of you. Good to see so many friendly faces and, and people who know me so well, and you've stayed here to hear me preach. I'm speaking out of uh, Psalm 27 this morning, which I just read. This is a Psalm of David, uh, and this speaks of the beauty of the bounty of the Lord. Uh, David is seeking beauty here, but he is struggling seeking it. And to introduce this, I want to share with you a day of beauty, at least a partial day of beauty that I once had in 1997. Uh, many of you know, and I know so many of you play tennis, uh, grew up playing tennis here, and uh, I don't remember exactly what day it was, but it was in April of 1997. It was a beautiful spring day, as they are wanting to be here in Columbus, Georgia. Temperature was perfect. Sunshine was brilliant. I had entered a uh, sanctioned tournament at the Country Club of Columbus, and it was a a pretty big tournament. Some of the top-ranked players in the state were coming down. I had not played in the tournament. I was unseated. I was unranked, and uh, I felt my game was up to par, and I was looking forward to playing, and my first opponent was the number six-ranked player in the state, a guy named Joe Drewash. I haven't seen him since that day. But um, he was ranked number six, and I was interested to test myself against him and went out and played my first round match, and it just was beautiful. It was fabulous. I won against the number six ranked player, 6-1, six, 6-love, uh, a resounding defeat for him. Now, these were the courts I grew, had grown up playing along with many of you, and um, so I, I was feeling pretty good about myself. And the next round, I drew the number one ranked player in the state. His name was Keith. I think it was Keith Myers. And um, I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. And we went out and began the match and I won again. The first set, I won 6-1 against the number one ranked player in the state. And I thought, what a fabulous day this is. And um, as the second set went along, that was looking great as well. I was up 5-1 in the second set. Uh, and serving for the match, uh, which is an incredible advantage, got up to 40 love. That's three match points against the number one ranked player in the state. And I'd already started imagining what the headlines might say the next day. That was my first mistake. As I uh, proceeded to serve, uh, Keith managed to catch up. I made a few errors. He made a few good shots. Uh, It went deuce out a few times. I had a another match point or two that game. I ended up losing that. I thought, well, okay, it's, it's not time to panic. It's 5-2. I can win uh, another, you know, I've got some room uh, to wiggle here. And so uh, was up 40 love against his serve. 
and proceeded to lose that game. Uh, now it's 5-4. He's very close, so I've got to serve again for the match. I'm still in the hot seat. Uh, I had a couple of match points in that service game, proceeded to lose that game. It's now 5-all. Uh, and uh, I quit counting at 15 match points. Um, I won another game. He went ahead 6-5. I won another game. Went to a tiebreaker. I lost the tiebreaker barely. Uh, but I remember losing count at 15 match points. And uh, talking about the wheels falling off your life, from what I thought was going to be a beautiful day, I'm a weeping hilt on a pile of uh, wilting uh, on the side of the court. Uh, eventually got cramps and had to default the match in the middle of the third set. So what started to be a fantastic day turned out to be uh, a beauty ruined for me. Uh, maybe you've had something like that happen in your life. I know that was just a tennis match uh, for me who once had dreams of... Uh, playing with Roger Federer, that was, uh, that was uh, uh, well, the Lord showed me, put me in my place. Um, that was very disillusioning to me and uh, a very humbling day uh, uh, for me. It was beauty ruined. Um, but as you think about beauty, I want to invite you as we think about Psalm 27 to beautiful moments in your own life. I want you to reflect on that as I preach this morning. Uh, whether it might be a sports event, whether it might be scenery, whether it might be memories, uh, whatever. Uh, we all have a craving for beauty in our life. And I find that to be very interesting, as Scripture does as well. Um, C.S. Lewis speaks of the ruin of beauty to redemption. And that's a lot of what I want to speak on today. In his book, uh, the English writer, C.S. Lewis, A Weight of Glory, he alludes in that book to our deep desire to be transformed by the beauty of God, as David does here in Psalm 27. C.S. Lewis writes, and I quote, We do not want merely to see beauty. God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words to be united with a beauty we see to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. So how do we become part of this beauty that C.S. Lewis talks about? Uh, first of all, we have to experience the loss of beauty. And David experienced that in Psalm 27. I love the Psalms. David, even though this was written around 1000 B.C., uh, he still is a human, just like each one of us has the same emotions, uh, same experiences that each one of us go through. And you see a bit of the loss of beauty in Psalm 27. He says it is a day of trouble for David. He's been told he's going to be the next king of Israel. But the current king, King Saul, is not very excited about this. Uh, his own, he has his own children, his own son, Jonathan. And uh, he is doing everything he can to keep David from being the king. Uh, so whatever beauty David was, was around, you see from reading Psalm 27 that it had faded. It was fading from his life. His core relationships had fallen. He was on the run. Uh, I've been to the 
the oasis out in the middle of the Judean desert that overlooks the Dead Sea where he had uh, hidden out uh, an oasis, uh, hiding from uh, armies that were searching from him that Saul sent out. And so he's, he's on the run, he's hiding. Uh, and you see, too, from Psalm 27, and you've experienced yourself the disabling power of fear that replaces darkness when it comes into our life. Have you felt that before? I know I have. I would imagine each one of us have. I don't think I'm any different from any of you. Uh, when we have spiritual loss, this is a human reaction from circumstantial loss. Uh, it feels like God has left you. Uh, it's a very dark time. Uh, but I would imagine each one of us have had those times uh, when we go through our life. And so the question is, what do you do about that? What do you do? And David goes through. He leads us through this. And he says in verses uh, 4, uh, verse 3, he says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. How is he confident? Well, he goes on to answer that in verses 4, 5, and 6. And in verse 4, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. He says he's going to seek after it. Typically, he's telling us to engage. But typically, uh, I know your first reaction is to isolate, to pull back. I went jogging this past week uh, up in the neighborhoods where I live, and I noticed on the street uh, a little turtle that was trying to get across the street, and he was bumped up against the curb. You've seen this before. And he could not. He was too small to get over that curb. And so uh, on the way back, I thought, okay, I'm going to help him. And I reached down to get his shell. And when I did, his head and his legs all came in. And it was just his shell. And so I picked him up and put him on the grass and assume he crawled on. It was a baking hot day. He was being cooked on the cement there. And, uh, and, the, and the turtle, uh, when they sense fear, they isolate, they pull back. And that's our our natural reaction. But David says, no, don't do that. Engage. Seek after. Seek the Lord there. And he tells us too, as we read through Psalm 27, identify where the loss is. What are my emotions uh, from that loss? David does a great job. And that's why I love reading the Psalms because he identifies so well with us emotionally and spiritually. Uh, why am I so grumpy or irritated about what I'm going through? These are good things to ask yourself when you feel this type of situation. And then as the psalmist goes through this, he allows the beauty of this psalm to work its way into your life. It brings healing to us, much like when a physician gives a pill and it starts to work. And he says, this is good. This is healing. So David describes the chase of beauty, the seeking after beauty uh, here. And in verse 4, he says, after seeking after uh, this one thing I've asked, he says his desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord. David's desire for beauty is inexhaustible. It's unquenchable. Uh, the Bible presents God 
as the most beautiful thing in the world. His character, his attributes, all the beauty in the world is derived from God. Uh, they draw beauty from God. You think of the things that are beautiful in your life that you desire, that you love to think back on, that you remember, uh, that you may look out on. Uh, Jerry and I have had the privilege uh, the last several years, uh, about four times, to go to Zimbabwe with Dr. Ms. Steve Beatty, who are actually over there right now ministering. And we've done work in the eye camps and doing tennis clinics uh, with children in Zimbabwe. And then at the very end, we've always taken trips up to the north, uh, right up where this lion, Cecil, I've been out in Hwangi, and I may have heard Cecil in the middle of the night. He scared me to death. Uh, if it was him. Uh, but uh, Victoria Falls is in the north. Maybe some of you have been there. It's the most grandest waterfall in all of the world. And to sit there and look at that fall, a mile long with water cascading over, the, the steam, the spray will drench you. You have to give, I have a raincoat on, or it will just drench your clothes because of the, and you're way above the fall, but the steam, the spray is... Uh, is so great, uh, and it just magnifies the beauty of the Lord. Uh, perhaps you've been into the Rocky Mountains. Maybe that's beauty to you. Or the Florida Gulf Coast, those crystal sand beaches that we love uh, visiting, and they minister to our soul in many ways. Um, perhaps that is a way of beauty to you. Uh, a few years ago, Jerry and I were able to go to London and visit the Tower of London. Uh, maybe you've been there as well and gone into the jewel room of the Tower of London. Wow, talking about beauty, to see the crown jewels of England laid out in cabinet after cabinet with these fantastic lights shining upon them. I uh, came up on one of the crowns of Queen Elizabeth that may have belonged to Queen Victoria. And there was a diamond about this big on top of one of those crowns. I forgot the name of it, but I asked one of the docents, I said, how much, what's the value of this one diamond? And, uh, and this was, there were thousands of diamonds in this, this cabinet. And he said, De Beers had done an assessment on that diamond about 12 years ago, and it was worth $600 million 12 years ago. Uh, so you can imagine the pricelessness of all the jewels laid out before us. Um, they reflect the beauty and glory of the Lord uh, to me. Um, all these treasures of beauty point to the glory of the Lord. And David feels this as he reflects on beauty. Uh, but as he reflects on it and as we reflect on it as well, doesn't it oftentimes seem elusive to you that you can't quite get your hands on it uh, I'm reminded of a, a world-famous violinist who played with a Stradivarius. Maybe you heard about the Nina Totenberg of NPR. Her father was a famous violinist, and uh, somebody had stolen his Stradivarius uh, 35 years ago. Nobody ever knew what happened, but it showed up this past week. Somebody was trying to sell it, and the FBI got on it, and I think we'll hear the rest of the story on that. But uh, one of the world-famous violinists several years ago was scheduled to play with the Boston Symphony Orchestra, sold out in the Symphony Hall in Boston. He arrived a few days early with his very valuable Stradivarius, uh, 
and decided just to kind of do a trick to go out in Boston Commons near the subway where the Boston Tea runs through and people coming off and where homeless people sometimes hang out and ask for money. And he wore some ratty blue jeans and tennis shoes and kind of put on a T-shirt. But he took his million-dollar Stradivarius with him out there, opened his case, and started playing. In three days, he's got a sold-out concert. And as he played, only $20 was dropped into the uh, Stradivarius case there. Um, he was just out of context. People didn't know what they were hearing. They didn't appreciate what they were hearing. Uh, it was the elusive nature of beauty. And yet, three days later, people were paying hundreds of dollars to hear him play uh, with the Boston Symphony. And we tend to do that ourselves, don't we? We substitute, uh, substitute beauty for true beauty, whether it's materialism, whether it's politics, uh, whether it's recreational sex, whatever. Uh, David says, look to the Lord, dwell, gaze, seek. These are, are the ways we search for beauty. And David had many needs, during this time, he had needs for food. He had needs for water. But he says in verse 4, the one thing I have asked for is for the Lord, devotion to the Lord. And for Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ is the supreme and main source of our devotion. That's who we're here to worship today, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here David says is something that cuts through everything else. Uh, that we ask. And we should ask this, should I do this or that? Whatever leads us to devotion to the Lord is what we should do. So number one, seek after God. To pray and to seek it out. David says that's what we do. We dwell. He says, I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Dwelling means abiding in Christ. Jesus says in the New Testament, he says to the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. We are the branches. As long as the branches are connected to the vine, no matter what kind of rain, no matter what kind of storms or earthquakes, uh, sleet, snow, they won't bother you because you're connected to the vine. So how do we abide? We abide by delighting in Him, enjoying His presence. You delight in the presence of your children, your grandchildren, your pets. How do you do that? You sit and sometimes no matter what they say or do, you can sit there and just admire and delight in them, uh, being with them. Um, there are no substitutes. Everything else turns up empty. And so uh, he says for us to delight in him. And there's much to blind us today from the beauty of the Lord. When we leave these, these, this church today, We'll hear all kinds of verse, voices out there. There'll be all kinds of things that will challenge us and seek to blind us from the beauty of the Lord. But David gives a response. He says, not only dwell in the house, but to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? I believe that means communion with God. Augustine, the great Christian father uh, we call St. Augustine in the 4th century, he says there are two things about dwelling. Getting the truth of the Bible 
from reading God's Word, and then secondly, contemplating as you look at God through the truth. And he says to ask questions. What does this mean? What's false ideas and attitudes, false emotions come when I forget God's Word? Um, Augustine means that it's a discipline of the mind. Uh, I, I, made, I got a few notes from uh, Dr. Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and he says this affects, as Augustine writes here uh, about Psalm 27 from the 4th century, he says, um, uh, the Christian, if following Augustine's first rule of prayer, has realized that comforts and rewards and pleasures in themselves give only fleeting excitement. And if you rest your heart in them, actually bring you less enduring happiness. He turns to Psalm 127. One thing I've desired of the Lord. This is the fundamental prayer for happiness. Augustine writes, we love God, therefore, for what he is in himself. And we love ourselves and our neighbors for his sake. That doesn't mean, he quickly adds, that we shouldn't pray for anything else other than to know, love, and please God. Not at all. The Lord's Prayer shows us that we need many things. But if it is our God's greatest love, and if knowing and pleasing Him is our highest pleasure, and then it transforms both what and how we pray for a happy life. Uh, wise words from Augustine. Uh, we do this. We we delight, we dwell, we do this with, a lot of times, with everything but God. I know I have to catch myself. I'm tempted in that way. We gaze at the beauty of these other good things, whether it's automobiles, whether it's some other material thing uh, that we substitute for the one thing. Uh, I'm tempted to do that with tennis. I did that with tennis, and I paid the price for it. Um, but parents, children, careers, Romance, all sorts of things are good. Uh, John Calvin says, our hearts are an idol-making factory. And we often take very good things and turn them into idols, and that's when they become bad. And we begin to feel we can't live joyfully until we have it. And if somebody takes it from us, it's like somebody taking an ICU patient's air hose and putting a crimp in it. Uh, and we don't like that, do we, at all? Uh, Augustine says that's when anxiety comes in. And why does anxiety come in? Because anxiety is like the smoke. And when you see smoke rising, you can follow it down to the fire. And when you follow anxiety down to the fire, the fire is this. Anxiety is always the result of the implosion or collapse of a false god. Uh, we all do that. We all have these things, and we squirm with that when the Lord starts messing with us in our kitchen. Uh, we're eaten up with worry. We're eaten up with anxiety. David sees himself doing that in Psalm 27. He wants to gaze at the beauty of the Lord, and you see anything but God and His will is subject to the vicissitudes of the ups and downs of life and time. Anything you set your heart on besides God, can be taken away. David says that even in verse 10. My father and my mother have forsaken me. Uh, he's in a bad fix. Uh, we all get anxious because the good things become false idols. But David reminds us, what's the one thing we need to focus on? 
How do we make sure God is the real thing? We dwell. We gaze. We seek. We delight in him, as he says in verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, uh, Lord, your face, Lord, do I seek. Turn him over in our imagination. We can do it. We do it with cars. We do it with pets. We do it with our careers, our houses, with particular people. God says for us to do it with him. David says, now do this with the Lord. In marriage, we fall into each other's arms. We learn what each other likes and dislikes day in and day out in that intimacy of that. And you can't live life selfishly in marriage. Um, it reminds me of, of Mark 10, verse 46, when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for that last time. He's got his heart set. He knows he's going to pay the ultimate price for our sin. And as he leaves Jericho, there's a blind man named Bartimaeus there, and he's heard Christ is coming along the roadway there up to Jerusalem. And as he gathers there, he hears the crowd coming. He knows Jesus is in that crowd. And you can put yourself in that situation. Somebody famous has got a large crowd of people, and they're coming by. To do what Bartimaeus did requires great desperation. He was blind. He knew he couldn't see anymore, and he was desperate. But he wanted to seek the Lord. And he yelled out, Lord, have mercy on me. And he got the attention of Jesus. And Jesus came over and said, what can I do for you, my friend Bartimaeus? And he said, I'm blind, I can't see. And he said, you're healed now. Go and follow me. And he did. Uh, Lord, have mercy on me. That's what Christ calls us to do as his followers, to dwell upon him, to gaze upon him, to seek him. Uh, we pray, we meditate on him, we come to church. All of these God uses to build our faith, to help us to seek him. Uh, and how does this work in real life? I think of Elizabeth Elliot who has spoken here in Columbus. I met her here in Columbus a couple of occasions. She died about two months ago. Her husband in the 1950s, uh, they were graduated from Wheaton College. They went off, felt God had called them to be missionaries in Ecuador to reach a tribe who did, had never heard, never seen a white person, never heard the name of Christ before. And as her husband and four other men reached out on the first effort to reach these people, they flew in, landed on water planes on the river there in Ecuador, and they got out, and they, they offered food, and, and the Indians came out with spears, and they speared each one of them to death. And Elizabeth, you would think she'd do what I think would probably be my first reaction. I got to get out of here. I got to go back to the States. This is terrible. But she said no. She said, God has called us here. We continue to seek him. We're going to reach these people for Christ. And she stayed down there, her and the other widows, and they did. They led these people to Jesus Christ. Uh, the man that speared her husband eventually baptized her own children in the same river in which her husband had been speared. There have been books and movies written about this. Perhaps maybe some of you have seen this. But when she died, 
she wrote in, uh, in her writings uh, about life. She says, there is dullness, monotony, sheer boredom in all of life when virginity and purity are no longer protected and prized. By trying to grab fulfillment everywhere, we find it nowhere. And she says, there's nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. The secret is Christ and me, not me in a different set of circumstances. That is powerful, ladies and gentlemen. That is the power of Christ. Uh, on her tombstone, it was written, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding glory. Christ was her rock. Uh, she stood strong on that. Uh, and Christ calls us also to make him our rock. So who is your rock today? Let us pray that it is Jesus Christ. Uh, we can stand on him. Uh, he will honor us standing on him. He will watch over us and protect us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word which does not stutter. We thank you for continuing to reach out to us. We marvel at your incredible love to us that you don't let us run away from you, that you bring us back by the scruff of our necks and pull us back because you love us and you're committed to us and you've made a covenant with us. Uh, Lord, build our faith. Uh, prepare us for the things you have for us in the week to follow. It's in Christ's holy name I pray. Amen.